welcome to our podcast, How Therapy Works, a non-denominational guide to psychotherapy for new and experienced therapists. We're here to help you understand what's going on in your sessions and what to do next. This is a standalone podcast, as well as a chapter-by-chapter companion guide to Dr. Smith's book, Psychotherapy, a Practical Guide. I'm Dr. Smith, and that's Jeffrey Smith, J-E-F-F-E-R-Y, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at New York Medical College. And we're here to help you reduce some of the anxiety that goes with being a therapist. And I'm Amelie Southwood, a mental health counselor in private practice certified in EMDR. This podcast is a companion to chapter 18 in the book, which is titled The Third Helper, Thoughts, and examines how thoughts in both CBT and psychodynamic theoretical models seem different, but are actually really the same. And also challenge the the assumption that we therapists should never ask our patients the question, why? And I was wondering, Dr. Smith, if you could tell us a little bit more about that, please. Yes, I think this is an example of an internalized value that from, from the very beginning, behavior therapy has had a value that says it's not a good idea, it's even shameful to ask why and to think about the origins of things. And that's increasingly faded away, but, it's, but it still hangs around. And that's what creates the apparent contradiction between CBT and psychodynamics, because psychodynamics is all about asking why. Why do people have a particular thought? Why does somebody have a thought that I'm no good or, or that if I do something positive for myself, then inevitably it's going to blow up in my face and, and it's going to cause me more, more misery so I won't even try. And so CBT focuses on that those thoughts are unhelpful and, and need to be corrected and that they're, that they're not uh, logical. And psychodynamics focuses on, well, why does a person have those thoughts? Well, the approach that, we're, that we've been talking about in this book is really that both of those are valuable. And the thing that connects them is that these automatic thoughts or free associations, either one, you can call them both of those things, those thoughts that pop into your mind automatically serve a purpose. And the purpose turns out to be, in general, avoiding uncomfortable, painful uh, feelings. And, and so that's been the theme of what we've been talking about, that the sort of what, what lies behind all of the problems, the, the entrenched dysfunctional patterns that we see is avoidance of uncomfortable feelings. Well, at least as far as the kinds of thoughts that are relevant to psychotherapy, those are the ones whose purpose is to avoid uncomfortable uh, feelings. And yet it seems that many of the thoughts that our patients have generate uncomfortable feelings. Well, that's true too. And as we look at more specifics in this chapter, the argument is going to be that those uncomfortable feelings actually themselves serve a purpose of avoidance. And, and so it is complicated, and we'll, we'll talk about that a lot, some in this chapter and in the next two chapters about, anxi- about depression and anxiety. We're going to talk a lot about feelings that may be enhanced or amplified by thoughts. Like somebody who's feeling depressed may have a thought that 
this depression is going to last forever. And that just makes the depression worse. In that way, the thought is a helper. It's a helper that the, that the non-conscious problem solver puts out in order to further the, the aim of deepening this depressed feeling. And that has a purpose in itself. So, um, so in this chapter, anyway, we're, we're talking about how thoughts perform a helper function that, they, that they're products of the non-conscious problem solver, that, that each serves some kind of a purpose of helping to keep us away from painful and uncomfortable feeling. And those feelings that we're avoiding, those are usually deeper and not always conscious. So throughout this chapter, you use the example of um, addiction and how thoughts influence uh, relapse or maintain sobriety. You also describe how how thoughts actually do this and the purpose of the thinking in terms of addictive behavior. I hold this kind of dear because that's really how I first came to really appreciate the presence and the activity of the non-conscious problem solver. It was in working with people in early sobriety who had just recently given up their, their precious addiction. In those people, you can just hear the non-conscious problem solver doing its very best to try to make sure that the, that the newly recovering addict finds his or her way back to the substance. And how does the problem solver do that? Well, one of the ways is to pop convenient thoughts into the mind that lead the person to make bad choices. And so that got me to listening to those thoughts. And the more I listened, the more I was impressed with how exquisitely crafted they are to produce the end result that they're looking for. So for example, an alcoholic who's, who's in early recovery might have the thought just pop spontaneously into their mind that, well, maybe I'm really not an alcoholic and, and maybe I could, I could use controlled drinking where it might be even more subtle. It might be similar to the kinds of thoughts that children have when they don't want to go to sleep. You know, suddenly they're thirsty and they want to drink a water. Or suddenly they have an idea that, that Mom, I, I want you to read that book that was downstairs. Would you go downstairs and get that book to stave off the necessity of sleeping just another few moments? So the mind is very, very creative at coming up with ways that are going to lead to what it thinks is good for us. Throughout this chapter, you make the point that thoughts have as much intelligence as the individual, which I think is a really neat way of, uh, of describing thoughts. And uh, I'm just wondering, can you tell, tell us more about that? Uh, yes, I mentioned that to somebody the other day, and it was kind of an eye-opener for her. Oh my gosh, you mean, you mean this part of my own mind that wants me to relapse from my alcohol problem has the same IQ as I do? And, and it gave her a respect for the non-conscious problem solver in her own mind. And that's really been a theme throughout, is that we want to regard that problem solver as a part of us, as a, a beloved part of us, that often gets the wrong idea and sometimes thinks like a child, but is nonetheless does a lot of good for us. And so we need to have respect for, for it at the same time as a kind of compassion and, and even, uh, even love for that part of our own mind, even though, like a child, it doesn't always come up with the right answer. You suggest that um, the non-conscious 
problem solver designs thoughts for maximum effectiveness, which brings us back to a, a point that is threaded throughout this entire book, that really everything we do is designed to promote species survival, our own survival. At least those entrenched dysfunctional patterns, those EDPs that we keep talking about that are really the targets of psychotherapy, yes. And when you listen to the kinds of thoughts that are leading somebody to perform a dysfunctional pattern, they are exquisitely uh, crafted to do the job. And, and if you like with the, the example of the, of the people with addiction, if you ask yourself, what is the most effective argument that any salesman could come up with to talk this person into making a bad decision, the mind will come up with exactly that kind of thought. It really does an amazing job. It also is important to realize that spontaneous thoughts don't come out of our memory banks someplace. They are, they are crafted on the spot to combine all of the present conditions, all of the factors that happen to be going on in the person's life in order to put together the most effective package to get them to do what, what their non-conscious mind thinks they should be doing. So um, that it may not always be logical, and they can always mix health and dysfunction into one thought. Sure, and you know the best argument uh, for for something that's that's not really in the person's best interest is one that combines some truth and some false logic and some good characteristics, some good ends and some bad ones. It's it really gets complicated. And when thoughts pop into your mind, they don't come color coded. They don't come with labels to tell you whether they're good thoughts or bad thoughts. They just pop in there and it's up to us then to develop and to help our, our patients develop the ability to see the difference between healthy thoughts and, and dysfunctional ones. And so speaking of dysfunctional thoughts, as they relate to entrenched dysfunctional patterns, EDPs, you, you distinguish four varieties of thoughts that relate to EDPs, entrenched dysfunctional patterns. Right, and this isn't terribly important, but, but yes, yeah, some, some thoughts are really, you could call them impulses. They're just, they're a thought or an image of doing something that make you want to do that. Uh, another kind are thoughts that are going to influence you to do a certain behavior, like the ones I described in relation to addiction. Then there are thoughts that are helpers to reinforce symptoms like depression or anxiety, uh, like the ex example I gave earlier of thinking that depression is going to go on forever. That's a thought that deepens the bad feeling, the depression. And what is it trying to avoid? Well, we, we, we'll talk about that extensively in the, uh, in the next chapter, but there are deeper feelings that are being avoided, even by something as, as uncomfortable as depression. So that's the third kind of thoughts that are helpers to influence uh, emotions. And then there are intrusive thoughts, like in obsessions and, and things like that, that you can't get rid of even though you'd like to, and those we'll deal with in, a, in another chapter. So the ones that we're mainly concerned with in this, in this chapter are the ones that, that, it, that reinforce behaviors and the ones that reinforce symptoms like depression and anxiety. And I just want to say as a side note, it's really mystifying how a thought reinforcing depression and anxiety could actually be a helper to the species survival. 
You bet. That's been that's been a mystery for years and years. But I think that the more we look at the non-conscious problem solver as a product of evolution that's programmed through evolution uh, to accomplish things that are important for the species, that's really what's going to help us understand those. But we're not going into that any deeper right now. Right. You state that psychodynamic therapists see influencer thoughts as defenses designed to keep the patient and therapist away from uncomfortable mental contents. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah. So this is a place where we can talk about uh, how different therapists deal with, uh, with thoughts and psychodynamic therapists talk about them as defenses. Well, defenses is another way of saying avoidance of uncomfortable feelings. They're really the same thing. And, and addiction therapists say, well, that's the disease talking. That's the, the mind's way of, of steering a person back to their, their addiction. And cognitive therapists um, see them as simply promoters of dysfunctional behavior that need to be changed. And, and they have a tendency, though not always these days, not to ask the question of why. But for, for whatever kind of therapy, thoughts are certainly important Nowadays, thoughts are, are central and important to every form of therapy. And so I, I hope that the people with cognitive training will embrace the idea of being open to wondering what might be the deep down emotion that a thought is helping us to avoid. And speaking of avoiding, in this chapter, you state that uh, avoiding thoughts makes them stronger. Right. Here's something that we, we really owe a, a debt, in a way, to uh, cognitive and behavioral uh, therapy and research. At what, they've, what they've really discovered and, and reinforced very strongly is that a lot of the trouble that people have comes from trying to eliminate uncomfortable feelings, ones that are conscious. And it happens with trauma when people try to stay as far away as possible from their traumatic memories that prevents them from healing and it also introduces things like uh, like addiction for example which is pretty common in in let's say combat veterans and then in in many other areas anxiety for example that uh, that much of the treatment of anxiety is aimed at eliminating the anxious feeling and in the long run, that probably makes it worse. And the more you try to eliminate a feeling or a thought, the, the worse it gets because it makes your mind focus on that thing. And also, I think the mind is the non-conscious problem solver, is trying hard to maintain what it's trying to do to keep on its purposefulness against the efforts of therapists and, uh, and patients to eliminate those feelings. So what works better is to be kind and, and positive and understanding about irrational thoughts and behaviors and to work with them and to acknowledge that they don't lead to good things, but they're still understandable and they're natural. And so in a way that's very similar to the way we might deal with a child who has an idea or a desire that isn't possible or isn't good for them, then we're not going to just say no, we're going to talk to them and explain and help them understand and ultimately say, you have to trust me, uh, no, that's not something that's good for you. Right, which would have to come out in a slightly different way in the session. 
but then this just leads me to conclude that really thought stopping, which is a technique that is uh, uh, promoted by, by many in the field, is actually ineffective. That's research has shown that as that's my understanding. Yes. Right. But that technique kind of endures. Uh, I've, I've heard many colleagues talk about it. And then also it, it seems to um, encourage stepping into the frightening feelings, being willing to embrace them and hold them, which strikes me to be the heart of mindfulness therapy. Exactly. And, and that to, to your patient feels a little bit like you're saying, how would you like to go to the dentist's office right now? And get a root canal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, sounds good. I want that. Yes. Um, there's something very important here, which is that people have a very, very natural tendency as adults when they realize that they do have irrational and thoughts that are leading them in the wrong direction, they have a tendency to be kind of angry and, and rejecting of the part of their own mind that's coming up with those thoughts. And they want to eliminate that and even punish it. And we need to, to teach them, just as with children, that negativity and punish and a punishing sort of attitude also makes the, the dysfunctional patterns worse. It doesn't help and it doesn't, uh, it doesn't lead to resolution. What does lead to resolution is, just as you said, is going right into the most painful and difficult thoughts, not starting with the worst of them, starting with the, the mildest, but we need to have a very positive attitude towards that. And that's where the therapist's embracing of the, the idea of mindfulness contains a lot of that understanding and, and gentleness and warmth. One of the roots of mindfulness, at least in my own practice, is curiosity having curiosity about each thought without judging it uh, as good or bad, but just simply inquiring, recognizing that the thought is there, accepting it for what it is, investigating it, and really not identifying with it so much and that, you know, we don't really integrate it into our, uh, into our entire person, but just looking at it as an outside object with with curiosity helps kind of make the thought safer yes and and that's a that's an attitude that we model uh very consistently and and that and we help our our patients really take in that same sort of attitude towards their own thoughts and and that really leads us into the area of treatment principles mm -hmm. so in the treatment principles, which is a section uh, that is in every single chapter of this book, you speak of consciousness raising. And so becoming conscious of the thoughts as they arise, then naturally leads to the process of distinguishing the healthy thoughts from unhealthy ones. Yes, I, I think uh, cognitive therapists are, are, are good at uh, at the beginning, at kind of helping their 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 clients become uh, aware of and appreciative of the stream of thoughts that's going on in their head, and I think that 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 dynamic therapists do also. They they you know mon mirror a kind of curiosity about one's own thoughts, and so there's a consciousness raising because most of us aren't aware, really don't think about the fact that our mind is constantly generating thoughts, and and so we start with an awareness. Uh, that, that thoughts are there, 
And then we can start to observe them again with this not judgmental attitude. And we notice that some thoughts are really problem solving and creative and, and positive for us. And other thoughts lead to bad behaviors or reinforce on, on painful symptoms. And, and so how do we distinguish between good thoughts and, and bad thoughts, so to speak? And so distinguishing the two, I think, would lead us during the session to bump up against the values of, uh, of our patient. And I imagine that, I mean, I, I do know that with my own patients, I encounter resistance they don't want oftentimes to acknowledge the unhealthy thoughts. Right. For, for a couple of reasons. So one of them is, is, as you indicated, is kind of the, the shame about having irrational thoughts. You know, we have a value system that says rationality is good in general, in our culture anyway. And, and so sometimes we may have to get help our client to, appreciate that it's normal to have irrational thoughts uh, and that's part of our mental apparatus and it's part of how it works. But the other kind of resistance to looking at and maybe changing dysfunctional thoughts is comes from the fact that they're serving a purpose. And, and without our realizing, the non-conscious problem solver may recognize that the therapist attempts to change a way of thinking is actually a threat to something that the non-conscious problem solver thinks is important for survival. And so we may get an argument, we may get resistance in various forms from all ranging all the way from, I don't wanna talk about that, to an argument about, about that no, these thoughts are correct, this is, this is right. It's, uh, see all of the evidence that proves that whenever you try to do something positive in your life, bad things happen. Look at my experience you know, and, or, or I'm sure that my fate is a negative one. And I've just been chosen as one of those people who's never going to have a good life. Arguing with patients is rarely helpful. Right. So how do we deal with an irrational thought? And we do our best to, to help people understand that these thoughts are natural and they're okay. When it comes to an argument like that, so it doesn't help to argue. Overt argument just doesn't work. Our authority isn't going to carry us that far. And if it does, it's probably just suppressing the, the patient's disagreement. So we're going to need to use things like the Socratic method of, of motivational interviewing, where you kind of lead the person into looking at their own logic and seeing where it, it doesn't really work. We might need to just to ask the client to listen and explain our point of view and ask them to be open to that possibility. That's, that's on the limit. Uh, but if we have to push harder than that, we're probably not going to get very far at this point. And that's where that strategic retreat, the, the third step of the three-step dance may come in. Could you remind us what the three-step dance is, please? Oh, yes. The first one is when you notice carefully when the stream of spontaneous thoughts is going away from something, when your curiosity alerts you that something might be avoid is being avoided, then the first step is a little nudge is to say, hmm, what's that? Um, tell me a little more about that or something very, very 
mild and innocuous. And if that gets us going again, then we don't need the second and third steps. If it doesn't get us going, then the second step is to look at what's going on in the process. Hmm. Maybe that was a little uncomfortable to talk about. What I wonder what made it like that. So now you're addressing the resistance. That's right. I'm addressing the resistance. I'm using meta-communication to talk about the communication process. And then the third step is, you know what? This is a little too hard for right now. We're going to have to put that on the bulletin board for later and make sure that we remember to come back to it at some point when it's more, it's going to be easier. And that's a strategic retreat. That's right. We spoke a little bit about mindfulness earlier, and we hear the word mindfulness everywhere now and, and frequently. But I find in my own practice that it is an absolutely essential part of treatment and essential to the recovery of my patients. And here in this chapter, you, you define it as accepting dysfunctional thoughts as natural products of the mind while putting them in perspective as contents that should not guide life decisions. Yes, and, and that's putting a step in between the thought and the action, because usually we don't do that. We just, we have a thought and we go ahead with the action and mindfulness says, no, those are separate. Those, you don't really have to act on, on every thought. You can, you can step back and, and contemplate that thought and that kind of dual consciousness of, of the thought and the perspective on the thought at the same time is what makes up mindfulness. Um, it's been around for a long, long time. I think there's a Sanskrit word, smirti, um, that expresses that same kind of, of attitude of perspective. And as I've said before, I think it also corresponds to the experience of a child who uses mother's perspective to incorporate some perspective on what's happening in the child's world. When the child, when the toddler trips and falls, for example, and makes eye contact with mom to understand what's the meaning of what just happened. And that's, an ex that's a very early example that shows how we acquire this ability. But in general, when things happen too fast and when they're too threatening, then we lose that kind of perspective. And so therapy very often is a, is a quiet place where we can return to a state of, of perspective. But perspective without experiencing the, the feeling or the event or the, the state of mind at the same time is not mindfulness. That's just intellectual understanding. So, so mindfulness is that very interesting midpoint right in between uh, intellectual understanding and pure experience. Right. And leads me to an acronym that I often use in my own therapy, in my own sessions. Um, and the acronym is RAIN which is again to recognize the thought, to accept its occurrence, its presence, to investigate it with curiosity and openness, which is grounded in the acceptance that there it is, so we're not trying to avoid it, and then to not identify entirely with it, to see it as a product of our mind as opposed to it being our mind. Uh-huh. And I just want to say that the RAIN acronym comes to us from Tara Barak, who is a clinical psychologist and a Buddhist teacher. Um, that's, that's a good one. I, I sometimes use a visual metaphor. Uh -huh. I talk to people about surfing a feeling. Think of a feeling as like a wave in the ocean, and it's big and powerful, 
but you can ride on top of it and you feel it underneath your feet and you know that that it's going to pass on and it won't last forever and pretty soon it's going to wash onto the shore and you're still there standing up right so in in the treatment principles for pathological thoughts you you provide other techniques uh, in this chapter distraction postponing human warmth company and support graphic detail of the worst case scenario of a thought so there's a number of yes a number of things when thoughts are intrusive and uncomfortable so yes distraction is a good is a good thing to do something positive that takes the mind away from thoughts and feelings like like we'll talk more about that in the chapter on anxiety in terms of addiction, for instance, in, in the 12-step principles, they talk about doing the next right thing. So you have an intrusive thought, you have the, the urge to pick out the drink. Mm -hmm. Just do the next right thing, which even if it's just emptying the dishwasher or picking up the phone and calling another sober friend, for instance. Yes. Right. And a, a closely allied technique is, is putting off action. Okay, I can do this but I don't have to right now. So why don't I just put it off for 20 minutes and then I'll make the decision about whether to act on my thought or my impulse. And by that time, very often, the intensity of the impulse is, is no longer there. Right. It helps a lot to share this with another person. Uh, the more we keep these kinds of thoughts and impulses private, the more intense and the more compelling they are. And that's also one of the important ways to tell the difference between a, a positive thought and a, and, a, and a negative one or a, an unhelpful thought is first to ask where the thought is leading us. If we follow that thought, if we follow that impulse, what's it going to lead us to do? Is it going to lead towards something healthy or something unhealthy? Uh, that's a very, very important way to tell the difference between ones we might want to follow and ones we might want to resist and the other one is to share it with another person. And if the other person rolls their eyes and says, uh-oh, then you know that it's not a good idea, pretty much. Because other people than, than ourselves very often have a much easier time recognizing a thought that is, that is dysfunctional from one that's a healthy one. And again, I don't mean to tout the 12-step uh, treatment model for addiction, but these four principles are fundamental to the program of sponsorship, right? So you do distraction, you do the next right thing. If, if your patient is tempted to pick up a drink, do something different, do the next right thing and postponing it just for today, they say, just for today, I will not pick up a drink, right? Mm -hmm. right. And then the human company and warmth, talking to another person, pick up the phone, call your sponsor, who is probably going to tell you, well, how is a drink going to help you now? Yeah. Right? Yes. Uh, that, that's right. And, and I think it's, it's not a coincidence that when it comes to ideas and impulses, that since addiction is an area where the non-conscious non problem solver is particularly active at getting us to do the wrong thing, then the techniques that have been developed in 12-step programs and, and addiction treatment in general are particularly useful when it comes to dealing with this kind of, uh, this kind of thought. And so that's why in this chapter, we've, 
we've been kind of looking at disproportionately at, at techniques that come from the field of addiction. And so in chapter 19, our next chapter, we're going to look at uh, how to apply these techniques in terms of uh, uh, the involuntary symptoms of grief and depression. Right. And that's the place where we'll take a deep breath and we'll, we'll tackle the issue of, of how can an uncomfortable feeling like depression actually be a means of avoidance of painful and uncomfortable emotions. Right, which, which seems to be um, a paradox, but uh, fascinating, and we'll get to it next week. Yeah. But uh, for now, this concludes today's podcast, and I'd like to thank our listeners for listening to the end. Uh, we hope it's been helpful to you, and we'd love you to visit Dr. Smith's website at www.howtherapyworks.com, where you can purchase the book psychotherapy, a practical guide, and find other articles for clients and therapists. Dr. Smith, would you like to add anything today? So I hope that this chapter leads to a greater appreciation of the richness and, and the intelligence of spontaneous thoughts and the purposefulness that they have, uh, because there's, there's a lot we can learn about how the mind works. It's, it's really does an amazing job behind the scenes of steering our, our behavior and our feelings and our experience of life, many times for the better, but sometimes for the worse. And that's where the more we have a, a, an accurate understanding and appreciation of this, the better we'll be as therapists. Okay, great. Well, thank you everybody for listening. Okay, bye for now. Bye.